the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. With me here, of course, to further unpack this is Dr. Jay Smith. Dr. Jay, what do we mean by this paradigm that you've referenced as Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj paradigm? Well, the Noldekishwali paradigm, zeroed in on Uthman, what Shoemaker is now creating is saying, no, let's talk about another paradigm, and he calls it the Abdul Malik Al-Hajjaj paradigm. Or he doesn't really call it that, I'm calling it that, but that's really what he's pointing to. So he's bringing it from 652 to around the turn of the century. So he's bringing it back about 50 years. And he's saying, no, this is where the Quran was actually really put together. Let's just open up with some of the quotes that he has in his book here. And that's the heart of his book, Creating the Quran. Exactly. Yeah. So now we're well into what he's been trying to get at for uh, almost 50 pages. This is page 46. He says this. The Meccan Medinan Codex was almost certainly no more than a regional version of the Quran that held authority in Medina and perhaps in Mecca as well. As such, it must be understood as simply another of the so-called companion codices collected independently in Syria and Iraq. Uthman's collection was simply one among many early collections. So he's already admitting that there was an Uthmanic collection, but it's not the final one, not the canonical one, not the one that we have in our hand here. That's what he's saying. This is not it. Right. Now, Robinson wades into this as well, and he quotes from Robinson. And Robinson says, Abdul Malik had a clear interest. As we shall see, his imperial program was in very large measure executed by broadcasting ideas of order and obedience in a distinctly Islamic idiom. What is more, unlike previous caliphs, Abdul Malik had the resources to attempt such a redaction and to impose the resulting text, which, amongst all its competitors, we inherit. So what is he saying? Well, let's take a look. Just look and see what's happening on the ground. We've said this to all the, always do this. Look and see who are the main powers. And remember, this has always been a category that we've, that we've, that we've admitted. In order to have something that is different than that which has come before. So what has come before? Well, you have the Old and New Testament. You have those uh, revelations that have come to the Jews and the Christians. The Jews have the Old. The Christians have the New. Now you have another group that are not neither Jew nor Christian. They are anti-Trinitarian. They would still call themselves Christian, but they are from the line of Ishmael, not from the line of Isaac. So they're, from the, they're in the Nabataean area. They're all in Syria, and they're also part of Iraq. These are the Arabs who look to their, their lineage as uh, coming from Ishmael. 
cousins with the Jews and Christians, but not from the same block, you might say. Right. But the Jews and Christians have a text. The Ishmaelites don't have a text. They even call themselves Ishmaelites. They refer to themselves as Ishmaelites. We can see that when we get to John of Damascus, he's very clear that this is a heresy, the heresy of the Ishmaelites. He calls it that. They don't call themselves Muslims. There's nobody called Muslims necessarily. Mm-hmm. So now we're to, in the end of the 7th century, moving into the 8th century. Abdul Malik is from the Marwanid family, the Sufyani family, which Mu'awiyah uh, was part of and started as part of the Umayyad Caliphate up in Damascus. He was not from the Marwanid family. He was very much a Christian. Uh, we've seen this from the inscriptions. We've seen this from the coins. You and I have gone through this before. Uh, he refers to himself as the the, uh, the leader of the believers, uh, the Mubin. And then he also... Mubinin, you mean? And he also... Amir al-Mu'minin. That's right, Mu'minin. And he also refers to the... Uh, puts crosses on his coins and puts crosses above his head, puts crosses on holding a cross, and he also puts it on the inscriptions. So he's very much a Christian, a Trinitarian Christian. He is part of the other group. Here comes the Marwanid family who eradicate the Sufyani family, take over, and the Marwans are really Ishmaelites, and they see their lineage through Ishmael, and that's why they are anti-Trinitarian. They are very clearly against the Byzantine Christianity. There you have Abdul Malik then comes from Marwan, his father, and takes over in 685. And he rules to 705. So he rules for 10 years. But he is the big player. He is, if you'll ask anybody who is the major player of the Umayyad Caliphate, it's always Abdul Malik. Mm-hmm. Abdul Malik is the one that introduces Arabic as the lingua franca for the whole area. Abdul Malik is the one that enlarges the borders. Abdul Malik is the one living in Damascus who builds that huge building right there in Jerusalem. And we've talked about the Dome of the Rock. It's still there today. You can look at it. It's the most resplendent building. It takes your it takes your vision. As soon as you go to Jerusalem, it's the thing that stands out above everything else. And it's sitting right there on the Holy Mount. This is where... This is where Jesus is going to come back. This is where everybody's waiting for. This is where the Messiah is going to return for the Jews. This is the Holy of Holies. And he's the one that puts this structure right there on the Holy of Holies. And what does he do? He's attacking right, left, and center the person of Jesus Christ. He's att- Not the person of Jesus, sorry, his divinity and the Trinity and his sonship. Mm-hmm. And that's where he introduces the Shahada with another second of the associators put in there. But he is the one that is actually the kingpin. He is the one that now introduces Arabic as a lingua franca, but he also therefore needs an Arabic text. He is the one that now needs to have something that can compete with the Old and New Testament. He needs to have a revelation that competes with that. So what Shoemaker is saying here is, look at Abdul Malik. You need someone of that stature. You need someone who's big, who's powerful, who has authority, like a caliph would have, but not just any caliph, a caliph who also has the vision and a caliph who has the charisma and a caliph who, therefore, confronts this notion of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus and introduces a new paradigm. This is the man that makes sense then to create that identity for the Ishmaelites. He has to have his revelation. Jews and Christians have their revelation. Where's ours? It's a sense of identity, creating identity. And that's why you see in the Quran an Arabic book for the Arabic people in the Arabic language. Why would they keep on saying Arabic, Arabic, Arabic? Unless, of course, Arabic is the lingua franca. Arab, this is an Arab revelation. So that's what we're going to start with. Now we're going to start unpacking it more in the, in the following in the following episodes. But let's get that in there. This is where he's now introducing both he and Robinson are saying we've got to pinpoint Abdul Malik.
Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Today, Dr. J is going to continue unpacking that for us. Dr. J, welcome back. Right. Okay. So we've kind of stopped with what they have said concerning Allah Judge. Let's continue that. And let's move back. And let's now go to De Premier. De Premier is another authority that uh, Shoemaker brings in, who writes in 2010 this. Along with these new codices, he also sent instructions that all earlier versions, he is Abdul Malik, all earlier versions of the Quran should be gathered up and destroyed exactly as Uthman was set to have ordered in the canonical narrative. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. This is a story that we hear in Al-Buhari that happened with Uthman. But what Premier is saying is, no, this actually took place during the time of Abdul Malik. And you see reference to this proving that that which was really something that Abdul Malik did is being redacted back to Uthman in the later traditions. Can you see why now? Because you've got competing codices. So what are you going to do with the competing codices? You destroy them. And competing politics, probably. But that's happening at the end of the 7th century, not the mid-7th century, okay? Mm-hmm. So De Premier brings that up. Shoemaker then concludes, there is a well-attested tradition that all that, uh, sorry, that Al-Hajjaj sent codices containing his newly standardized text of the Quran to the various imperial centers of the caliphate, including Egypt, Damascus, Medina, Mecca, Kufa, and Basra, intending that this version would supplant the local versions then in use. Hold on, hold on, hold on a minute. Did we just hear that story in the f- previous episodes? Isn't that the same story that we read in Al-Buhari, volume 6, hadith number 510, that Uthman sent it to the different regions, That's Medina, right. Mecca, Basra, Kufa, and Damascus. No, this actually happened with Allah Judge who did this. So this is happening actually in the mid, the changing of the century between the late 7th up until the 8th century. This is happening around 700 to 705. That which Abdul Malik puts together as the final codex, sends to the different centers, that same story is now redacted back to Uthman in the later traditions. Notice what later traditions? The Abbasid traditions. Right. Now, here's where we're starting to come in. And Shoemaker is starting to make this point. He's now he's going to say, and, and, and I'll push this a little hard, but I'm going to push it even harder. Because you and I have known about this, that there is a real problem with the Umayyads versus the Abbasids. The Umayyads are from Damascus. The Abbasids are Persian. They are from what is today Baghdad. Two different centers. Damascus over here, Baghdad over here. Remember, the Baghdad the, uh, didn't exist. That was Stesiphon. They were the Persians. They don't really have any power. They hated the Umayyads because the Umayyads were one that took over the power. Right. And so when they come to power in 750, what do they do? They eradicate everything, change everything, and then take what happened earlier and redact it back to their own principle. That's what I meant by competing politics. Oh, well, that's, that's, it's starting to come out now. And this is right. what... Uh, this is what Shoemaker is pointing to. Let's look at the next one. And this is from Hamdan. So now he's quoting Hamdan, who writes in 2010. Al-Hajjaj, who is the one who is the governor for uh, uh, Abdul Malik, he is the governor in the in what is today Iraq, in that area, the Persian area, Depu- is deputizes a committee and charges them with inspecting all the musahif that were in private ownership, 
and to tear up every Muslim that differed from the new imperial standard. As compensation, the owner was paid 60 dirham. So you can see, instead of burning them, he tears them up, has them torn up. Nonetheless, it's a destruction. It's a wholesale destruction of anything that disagreed with this canonized Musaf that's put together by, uh, in this case, hum, uh, uh, Hajjaj, under the direction of, of course, our good friend Abdul Malik. The premier comes back and continues. We get a, a, a glimpse of this, he says, in this editorial effort in Al-Amash, who in 765 talks about this. Now, 765, now you're in the mid-8th century. He's referring back to this. This is just at the beginning of the Abbasid. He is still free to write about this, and this is what he says. He noticed that these writings can be found in both Sahih Muslim and Al-Buhari, and he says this, Compose the Quran. This is, I'm sorry, this is Hajjaj speaking to uh, the scribes who are to do this. And this is what Hajjaj says, according to al Ahmash, compose the Quran as Gabriel composed it. The writing that includes mention of the cow and the writing that includes mention of the women and the writing that includes mention of the family of Imran. So there are three surahs that are referred there in, uh, that, he, that they are to compose, which means it seems like separate writings. Bring them in and compose it. Women, family of Imran, and the cow, right? Shoemaker, so, chapter 3, chapter 4. Basically, so that's what they're referring to, and they're turning to these chapters, right? Which are to, in the Quran today. So you can see this has been brought. Hold on to that idea because he's, they're going to. We're going to come back to that idea. And then you have Shoemaker saying this: some of these writings, these chapters, it would appear even born names that would ultimately be given to some of the Quran surahs. That's what you just brought up. Mm-hmm. The cow, that's chapter two. The women, that's chapter four. And the family of Iran, that's chapter three. So now we have two, three, and four. Right. All right? Material evidence of the cow's circulation as a discrete and independent text has really emerged in the form of a newly identified and soon-to-be-published papyrus directly confirming the words of Al-Hajjaj in this report. So it looks like these are different chapters brought from different codices and put into one codex, which is the codex that then Al-Hajjaj is doing under the authority of Abdul al-Malik. Shoemaker goes on and talks about the Dome of the Rock and looks at the inscriptions of the Dome of the Rock, which is pre. This is prior to this uh, codification. This is 692, where the codification starts in around 700, 705. But in 692, he says this, the Quranic inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock installed by Abdul al-Malik are earliest surviving evidence for the text of the Quran. That's true. We don't find anything earlier than that differ from the now canonical version of the Quran in many places. And we've said this over and over again. They are not the same. They're not even in the same order. But they are facsimiles of what then became the Quran. So this is the precursor to what then became the Quran. How can this be if the text of the Quran had already been firmly established already 40 years earlier in the reign of Uthman? Why anybody thought that through? Exactly. Well, we actually, we brought it up in one of our one of our episodes earlier. We said, how can you have different Quranic texts when you already have the canonical texts with Uthman, if the Uthmanic text was so was canonized and was so solidified and universal and well understood, then how can you have a completely different text appearing on the Dome of the Rock in 692, 40 years later? Exactly. Well, Shoemaker's coming to the same point. I mean, who authorized it? I'm sure somebody would have inspected it, and it would have been easy to fix. So, can you see, immediately we are now really putting, starting to ask some really damaging questions. In the next episode, what I want to do is... I want to look at 12 reasons 
for a later chronic creation. And these are 12 reasons that I've pulled out from what Shoemaker is saying. So I want to go into them and unpack them because I then you'll see exactly the step-by-step-by-step where he's going to go with his paradigm. Wonderful. Thank you so much as always. I hope everyone is enjoying uh, this uh, series. And as you can see, we're, re- we're beginning to uh, climb uh, basically into a climax, if you wish, of serious issues that are arising from the many arguments that are being brought up in Shoemaker's book. Till next episode, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. With me here to unpack these reasons is Dr. Jay Smith. Dr. Jay, welcome back. Yeah. What are these reasons that I think Showmaker is the one who's making them, right? Yeah, I, I've just put together 12. There are actually more that we're going to come up with later that are more geographical and historical. But these are the 12 that make sense just from uh, what Shoemaker's... Uh, uh, so he extrapolated them from his book. Extrapolated from his book on why he thinks it has to be the Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj uh, paradigm. Number one. First of all, when you look at the traditions, there is no unanimity in the early Islamic tradition on an Uthmanic authorship. This is from the the Sirah, the Tafsir, the Hadith, and the uh, the the, the uh, Tahrik. Those and, four and we demonstrated that. We demonstrated that. So you can't say that they are of one accord. You can see there's lots of contradictions, especially Al Tabari and uh, uh, Ibn Kathir. You can see they show all the different contradictory reference points to that. Number two. The Islamic tradition brings a chaotic tangle of inconsistent traditions concerning Uthman. So the, the fact that there's such an inconsistent and there is these contradictions there proves that there is a real problem with, with, it, with that paradigm. Number three, there was no early tradition of the Quran's definitive collection by one of the first four caliphs, which is really fascinating because we've always assumed it was the third caliph. That's right. So the, the fact is there's no early tradition that really says that. So why is it we've always taken that? It's the later traditions that that, that confirm that, and it's really al-Bughari, mm-hmm. which is 870, 240 years, much, much too late. Number four, the later Islamic community, that's the Abbasids. We're talking about the Abbasids now that the shoemaker's referring to, sought to establish an anchor for its text in the person of one of these early authorities, in proximity to the life of the Muhammad. So this is actually a, a concerted effort by the Abbasids to actually subvert al-Malik and al-Hajjaj and go even earlier to give it more authority. This is why we need to be careful because there's an agenda here. And then number five, there's considerable evidence that the Noldekian Shwalian paradigm, that's the one on Uthman, has lived a good life but now needs to be put to rest because of everything that we're now finding. It stands to reason. We go with the evidence that's on the ground. Mm-hmm. Number six, the Quran's composition under Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj is attested by the letter of Leo III. We haven't got into that. That's something that's coming up. We're going to talk about John Damascus. We're going to talk about Leo III. We're going to talk about Al-Kindi. We're going to talk about another guy named Alexander. Actually, we're looking into four different different Christian characters who are coming in the 8th century who are all actually talking about what's happening in their own lifetime 
And they're the ones that are going to emphasize that this book, this called book called the Quran, the recitation, was written in the end of the 7th and the early 8th. But we're going to get to that. But I'm just pulled that together in this point. Now, the Quran's composition, sorry, when we go down to that, let me do number 7 then. The strength of Abdul Malik's reign, in contrast to his predecessors, makes such an undertaking entirely feasible. It makes more sense. Because it's controlled. That's right. There was nothing yeah. there. And you're going to see, especially as Shoemaker gets in his later chapters, when he looks at the environment of that part of the world, especially when he looks at the environment of the, uh, the Hijaz. He's going to destroy the Hijaz. Much like we've been doing. He comes to the same conclusions we do. He's missing a few that he could be helpful with. We're going to help him with that. But certainly he's just going to shut that down. And he's going to say even at the time, uh, certainly, if, if because everything that we know in the Uthmanic and the Raidigadi Kev is from the Hijaz. He's going to shut that down. So hold on to that. That's yet to come. Number eight. Abdul Malik's program of Islamization and Arabization corresponds with this time as well. He's not only being Arabic into it, he's also bringing what then became Islam. I don't quite agree with Shoemaker. There's no word in Islam yet. Uh, and, of course, Abdul Malik doesn't introduce the term Islam or the term Muslim. That comes later. He's possibly just using the term casually, maybe, here. Shoemaker possibly could, and, yeah. and I think we're all, we did make that mistake. Number nine. It corresponds with the very first witness to the text of the Quran the, uh, on the inscriptions of the Dome of the Rock, which we talked about pre- previously. Number 10, why would the later traditions refer to Al-Hajjaj as changing the text? They even mentioned that he changed the text. Since he was the very, a very cruel and severe ruler, someone who would not be equated with such a pious memory. And we're talking about the Abbasid traditions. Why would they even refer to him as changing it if they hated him so much, unless they had to, because this was a well-known, this is part of common memory. Mm-hmm. They couldn't go against that. Number 11, ascribing a canonical text to more esteemed figures closer in time to Muhammad would make sense for the later Abbasids, and they needed a narrative which confronted the early Umayyads narrative. They hated the Umayyads. They didn't want to give credit to the Umayyads. Well, well I mean, the Abbasids I mean, are named after the uncle of Muhammad, Abbas. So it seems to me that it's quite possible. I mean, this is a theory, okay? Uh, don't jump uh, all over it yet. It seems to me that... It's quite possible that there was a guy by the name of Muhammad, was a local prophet, wasn't accepted by many, and somehow his family became prominent, the Abbasids, and they wanted really to earn credit by the fact that he's the one that should really get notoriety rather than what Abdul Malik is doing. It's good possible. Perfectly possible. Now prove it. Yeah. Well, that's true. You have to prove it. You've got to even show. If you're going to have a problem, if you think Abbas, Abbas is a character that's well-known, you don't even hear about Abbas until Tabari introduces him in the 10th century. Show me an Abbas in the 7th century. Surely there is some reasons behind this competition between the two. Ah, and it's political. Yep. Number 12, François de Roche, through through careful paleographic and chronological study, has confirmed that the earliest extant Qurans, which in fact were which were in fact produced in the imperial chancery, hold on to that word, imperial chancery during the reign of Abdul Malik. Dorosh is very clear, and we're going to go and look at the manuscripts. We're going to do that in, in upcoming episodes, and we're going to show when you look at paleographically and when you look at chronologically, when you look at these manuscripts, they are not from the seventh century; they are all from the eighth, ninth, and tenth century. When we're going to even confront the radiocarbon dating. We're going to shut that down, that whole argument down. 
just by looking at a number of manuscripts like the Birmingham Folio, like the Tubingen Manuscript, and especially your manuscript, the one you're working on, that's the, the Sanaa Manuscript. manuscript yeah. But that's yet to come. Those are coming up as else. So those 12 reasons, you can see, in every case, it looks pretty clear that who we need to look at is not Uthman, nor Abu Bakr, Umar, or, Atha, or Uthman, or Ali. Don't look at the four four caliphs. Don't even look at the Hijaz. Certainly get that out of there. Let's look and see when this book actually was started to put together. Not canonized yet. We're not going to say it's canonized. And Shoemaker never says that. But beginning of this book was put together, was starting to put together in one codex during the time of Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj. Absolutely. And all of these are logical reasons that are being raised by Shoemaker. And you've heard, uh, you know, my brother here mentioned something about the canonization. If you look at this particular paradigm now, the Abdul Malik paradigm, it makes sense why someone like Ibn Mujahid want to canonize certain readings because it's so close to his time versus having a gap of 300 years. So now you begin to see some backgrounds behind the evolution of a text and the standardization of its readings. Until next episode, have a blessed day. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.